Welcome to the Best Work Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Henley-Smith. The goal of this show is to uncover the personal stories of successful software engineers, founders, thinkers, and leaders who are all navigating their own working journey. Finding our best work is often this hidden journey, uncovered through an ongoing conversation with ourselves and the world around us. Every one of these episodes is packed, full of timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Juan Adrade, the co-founder and CEO of ReBank, the single source of truth for startup finances that went through YC in 2019. Juan has an approach to making decisions that is notably and deliberately less structured than many other founders and leaders I've spoken to. He articulates the case for following our most intuitive motivations in a way that is far too sophisticated to reduce down to listening to your gut. We discuss the way in which an individual's incentives and priorities can influence their decision making and the implications of this for job searching and deciding which companies to join. As well as sharing why he often feels his role is to help new joiners at ReBank fail, Juan explains how the pursuit of perfection is a misguided attempt in a startup and how he goes about applying these principles himself. What part of your brain have you used in the past to make the decision to allocate your time? Well, like... I'd argue that it's it it's always a combination. Things are always happening uh, uh, up there, even with your body. Um, so I wouldn't single out one particular area, but when I rationalize those electrical signals um, into how I make decisions, uh, I my best decisions have been the ones, the scariest ones. Um, that, yeah, that seem to sort of, that feel like they have leverage. So I'll explain. Um, I, before all of this, I was working for an insurance company a long time ago. My first proper job did really well, uh, uh, promotions and so on. But I got to a point where I was kind of ready for the next thing. Wasn't going that well in the company. Um, I was looking for another job because I knew I, I had like I was probably going to get fired. I, I wasn't a great. I was an okay employee, not great. Uh, depends how interested I was. So anyway, I looked for a job. I thought I found it. I wasn't. I hadn't had the contract, but I was like, yeah, fine. I'll leave. I'm going to leave right now. And it was all good. I thought I, I left with my pride intact. Um, that job didn't come through, and I ended up with three. Well, I ended up being unemployed for about three months. And I think so few people that I talk to are comfortable with that idea of like stopping or stopping the thing that you know doesn't make you happy and just just sort of figuring it out afterwards. Um, some like people I you mentee or just friends will want to go from one thing to the next thing without pausing and thinking and reflecting. So yeah, that that was really. Um, I think about that. That was like kind of like a pivotal decision because like the first month I just partied. I didn't really do much. But then the second month I was like, okay, hold on, we need to figure this out. And I remember sitting in my 
bedroom in Brighton late at night, uh, just thinking like, what, like, what do I care about? What do I really care about in the long term? And if I continue to do, will give me long term benefits, be it be it social, career, whatever. And to be honest, that's sort of paved the way. That paved the way for the well, all the way up until now. It's interesting that you had to pause and stop. I was like, why couldn't you have accessed that part of your mind whilst things were busy? You can't explain the feeling as you are feeling it. Really, you have to. You have to sort of find a way to, um, I guess, remove all of that noise from your mind. And, you know, you can say like yoga and retreats and stuff helps, but I don't know. I don't know why you can't do that, but I know that any time that, um, yeah, I guess it's, I don't hesitate so much now to make big decisions because I just, you know, that time it happened, it happened another time in a way where I quit my job with, and I had to pay, you know, a shit ton of money for a, an MBA, um, no promise of a salary. And I, I just thought I'll figure it out. Um, so maybe it's not that you can't access that part, but maybe it's more that for an individual like me, the challenge of figuring it out as you go is just more appealing. How did your decision-making process work when you made those big decisions um and were there any frameworks that you used that helped you work through them i think we give ourselves too much uh we give ourselves too much credit you know when making decisions um that that there is a process i i think it's it's a lot more natural than than it appears but you know the 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 sort of conscious side of it that I do my best to influence, um, I, I'm always trying to think of the long term. Um, so like when I hear people talking about optimizing salary in career fairs and stuff, I'm like, that's the dumbest thing ever. Um, so I, I think for me, it's optimizing for uh, like learning velocity and given you know given uh, so i, I kind of worked in corporate a little bit and then worked in startups and so like my worldview, limited as it is is that the the best learning velocity happens in high growth companies uh, so like when it comes to picking a role if they're not growing you know 30 percent 20 percent month on month uh like well you want to find that company and you want to work there because that's going to expose you to a lot of things more quickly. And if you're someone like me, that's really um, nourishing, right? Not ev not everyone likes that. But I, so yeah, long term and about learning, especially you know, when you're young. Saying that, I did, I'm not following my advice. When I was very young, like I was trying to optimize for salary, you know, because. I think at some point you're just like, this is unfair. I should be paid a lot more. My friends are all paid a lot more. Um, but yeah, I <laughs> I wish I hadn't, um, but it's hard. In some ways, it's kind of impossible to get out of the trap that you're in if you're 
surround yourself with people in that moment who are all at your similar level it's almost like if you were spending more time with people who are older than you maybe like 20 30 years and they were your peer group they'd probably be giving you the advice that you would give yourself back then but because our peers are going through the life stages at the same time as us we we we're not able to get that insight yet yeah oh yeah your immediate circle influences you as such a strong influence on the decision the way you think and and the things that you aspire to to have and that's why you hear every now and then someone talking about like my, my grandma used to say it like tell me who your friends are and i'll tell you who you will become and there's various versions of that when you were optimizing for when you've learned when you've optimized for learning velocity how have you chosen the things that you want to learn quickly what what skills are you looking to learn there at, at that velocity yeah this well this is what makes me a bad employee and and i'm friends with my old boss now but i i don't think we got on that much when i was at the at secret escapes uh, or at least I, I you know so to answer your question about how do i pick the things i just pick what's what I'm, what I want. <laughs> so like, I, I used to find it hard to, you know, if someone told me reconcile this, whatever, and do that or whatever, I'd be like, uh, and my mind just, it's almost like I, my mind couldn't process it. Um, and I just went into the stuff that seemed cool. So how do I know that, that just comes from, you know, from like who you are right down to being a child, and as a child, uh, I was always, I was interested in the, the sort of, in inventing things. I didn't know entrepreneurship, what that was, but like I would draw things and then give it to my teacher um, and, you know, draw things for my parents. So like creation or building is something that's kind of been uh, like in my mind is interesting from an early age. So like at my previous role, I, I wanted to spend every single day in or around the product and engineering team, you know, working out like new things to add to the website, to the product. In the same way that you had to pause during your working career to find the the quiet to make that decision, how how are you able to reflect on what you're interested in there it, you, as you talk about it it sounds like you're going such a long way back to kind of what it, what's influenced you during childhood or what things that you just kind of played with as a kid like is that something that's conscious to you day to day or do you have to do anything to to access those insights to enable you to make decisions something i wish i started doing earlier <clears throat> was um, just questioning like myself and just trying to understand what I'm good at. And at first, you know, like 10 years ago, that's really hard, right? In your mid twenties, early twenties, if you ask, ask yourself those questions, like, what am I actually good at? What, what do I do? You can't answer it. But like, I didn't stop asking myself that. And over time I, I got better at understanding, uh, you know, like, okay, so new products are more interesting than, working on the same thing uh ops is more boring than projects and then and so on and like yeah so it, it all it's all kind of like um 
the the reflection is is sort of in the near term, right? But because because I just like you know I like I, I write sometimes I write just to help me clear my mind and stuff, and um because of that I've tried to link it back to an earlier time, and actually part of the reason I've done that now that I think of it is because I started a company, um, especially. We got into Y Combinator, um, which is an accelerator in the U.S., and we really had to drill down on what we were good at because, you know, American founders and VCs are used to, like, I'm awesome at this. The best thing about me is this. And, like, growing up in sort of Northern Europe, like, that wasn't – it wasn't natural to me. So, so yeah, you know, it, it kind of evolved from just – finding out, you know, what am I good at? Like, what might I like to do? So like, okay, what have my achievements been in the last 10 years? Um, what like single moment was decisive and so on. So in the pursuit of developing yourself and your career, um, these questions have to come up, right? And you have to answer them. What other stuff did YC teach you about pursuing your best work personally well they were the first they were the like the partner that got us in aaron who we still talk to who's been amazing help recently especially he first of all like they were the first people to say you could become this and as a founder it's you're you're deprived of of any kind of external validation early on um and like they were the first one to be like hey like, well done. You could be you. You could go to the moon if you wanted to, and that's kind of sad. It's kind of sad that it took, you know, all that time speaking to UK investors and and everyone else that there was only one group of people that said that to us. Now, um, once we got in, I think we realised from well, I mean, we realised so many things. It was it was a pretty um, intense and kind of transformative for the company and for us uh, experience. Um, I, I mean, like, and they all matter so much. I need to sort of go through them. Like the first thing is that every founder is completely different. There's no cookie cutter sort of founder model. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're, you know, highly sociable, highly anxious or whatever. Like you can if you so choose. Um, and that was kind of cool seeing all sorts of founders. Then the next thing, you know, these guys and girls are like uh, so well respected in the community. Um, and the first thing they talked to us about was failure. And they described themselves as experts in failure. And again, that was so, uh, I don't know, it just felt like real. It felt human. You know, whereas others in in the area, other experts in in startups and tech, you don't really talk about failure. They talk about how successful they are and how amazing everything is, and and that's just bullshit. <laughs> we realize, and and for YT to also tell us that it's like, oh, cool, yeah. So it almost, you know, as a as a sort of first time founder, you're still figuring everything out. It's like, oh yeah, I can talk about all my failures, and it is part of the process. So that was, yeah, that was uh, really important. They sound like the types of things that aren't wouldn't just be relevant to a founder, 
but would be relevant to anyone in their job. Self-belief, the confidence to go from failure to failure. Yeah, that's true. And it, it did give us a lot more confidence and self-belief. And, you know, I I see uh, some of our interns that we, you know, we're working with, other people, founders that we meet in their early 20s, they just blow my mind because of the the, the fact that they got that confidence, that self-belief so early on, it doesn't happen to everyone at that, that age. Uh, I mean, at, at that age, I was partying and just having fun, you know. <laughs> so, mm. so yeah, and, and, and I think it all came from a lack of self-belief. You know, I, I didn't feel like I could go out there and achieve something great. I felt I was just, you know, like small town, you know, this is what happens in the small town. But luckily moved out of there, moved into London and yeah, things slowly started changing. So it's like less that you needed the confidence to like just be yourself, but more like you needed the confidence to know that you could do the thing in the future that you hadn't thought about yet. Like it's almost like less about just like existence and more like I just wouldn't, th these possibilities just wouldn't have felt open to me had I not been shown that I, I could maybe one day do it. Yeah, because you don't, it's as soon as I started looking at startups, everything in my mind just sort of started waking up to that reality. And it's like, oh, yeah, my dad started a company like when I was born and we moved countries for him to do another company. And I, oh, okay, so actually like I've got, you know, entrepreneurs in, in my family, but it just never clicked like, oh, and my grandma started a hair salon in Peru. And yeah, I don't know, it's... um. I think that happens across, like, across all uh, professions. It isn't just startups, but as soon as you open yourself to that opportunity, like your mind is almost like it accesses what it needs to to help you, um, I guess, go move forward. Since YC, what have been the biggest things that have stopped you doing your best work? I mean, it is. It all starts in the mind. And it manifests itself in some form, I think. I, and what I mean is you are your own worst enemy um, because it is a choice to believe the doubt or to believe the uncertainty that's in front of you. So, yeah, I, I guess that's that's a very short and simple answer. But like more specifically, um, I think it's it's quite uncomfortable to fail every day <laughs> and and i think um it is not something that is discussed early on in childhood you know early on it's about getting the grade and doing good and failure is seen as bad bad reports unhappy parents and and so on but in startups, the only distinction between startups that fail and startups that succeed is that they have had marginally more successes than failures, right? They've all had the same amount of failures, but the successful startups have marginally more successes. So, yeah, you, there's a mentality shift, I think. And like when new people come in to the company, like one of the first things I try and do subtly is is to i guess kind of help them fail which sounds weird but 
yeah, make sure that their relationship with failure is one that will help them, you know, progress. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's the fear of failure is what stops us doing our best work. What part of your body do you listen to when you make these bigger decisions about where to allocate your time and what projects to work on? It's a dance. And at least from what I'm learning, it's a con it's a dance between your brain and your body. But, you know, what I, you know, like sort of, um, historically it's sort of your, your heart, your mind, right? What do you listen to most? But I think everything kind of connects right, right up here, doesn't it? So I can't, <laughs> I just don't believe that we understand and have awareness of our bodies, enough awareness that we can say, here you go. Now, it, so the answer is more a reflection of who you want to be as opposed to how your body makes decisions. And I want to be a logical person. I want to be the mind. But, um, yeah, like I said earlier, my the decisions that i've been happiest with you know when looking back have been the ones where my mind has got me to a point and i'm i'm you know i need to sort of pick one route and then my my gut or my heart takes me down that route earlier on you said that you um that we over index on our kind of own self-confidence and our like belief that the decisions that we're making are, are ours and that it's us that's affecting them and um he said just then that uh like our awareness of our own body is like potentially pretty limited it almost sounds like there's this challenge that you're going through and you're making decisions which is trying to figure out like what it is within my sphere of control and what's out outside of it how how do you think you go about that process of understanding what's inside of your control and what is part of your decision-making process and what 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 else exists outside of it. When it comes to decision-making, deciding, uh, I think that's a natural process because, you know, when you're decision-making or a, a consequence of the decision-making process, so I don't think of it that much. Um, because, you know, the frameworks to make good decisions, at least in, in business are, are to have, to make sure you, whatever data is available to help make that decision better, you all have access to. And I think Google, how Google works, I think the book is, uh, where was, uh, Schmidt, I can't remember the, the CEO, I don't know if it was Schmidt or not, but, um, he, he describes how at the beginning of every meeting, that everyone shares data that they have to help that decision. So everyone's on an even sort of playing field. They have a scribe that takes notes in on a like white on a sort of projector as people are talking as well, which is um yeah, you can't do as a small startup, but like so yeah, I don't think about what's in my control or what's out of my control. I I I focus in on the decision. So like you know, what does the data say? And that, like everything, the logic, the mind only gets you so far. 
you always make decisions with incomplete data in business. Otherwise, you just you're just slow. You you can't make fast decisions. So we look at the data. We all agree on the outcome that, that we want. And and yeah, we hash it out. You know, we de- we debate. We go back and forth, and and that's the most enjoyable part, I think, of working, um, hearing everyone's opinions, and trying to understand that how their incentives are influencing that. So, like, I'm going a little bit away from your question, but I think it's really interesting, and it happens a lot. I notice it a lot. That, like, uh, you know, say a, a design decision. Um, uh, we. We so me, uh, our lead designer, CTO, and myself are basically the guys that shape the work to be built, and and we we have big disagreements on you know how and why, and what I always try and do is like okay just like tell me what I, what is your what is the incentive that is making you think that's the best thing, and and then we do that with each other, and if we all understand like our incentives it actually adds another layer of clarity to the decision. Um, and it, it stops being about like, oh, you know, I'm going to get my way or like, you know, I care about value, so I want to do it this way. Um, it, Yeah, it becomes far more rational. And I guess that's what we always try and do. We always try and get to like, uh, you know, what is the most rational way to make this decision? Uh, so, yeah, I'm the, the image of a CEO just pushing their, their idea through like that doesn't fly uh with us um yeah i i rarely get my way uh so which i i'm i'm glad that's the case but but yeah a little bit of a digression but but hopefully it touches on it somewhat yeah i mean in some ways are there any examples where the an incentive your own incentive is a good thing not a negative thing it's more about the combination of incentives that then you know, are they aligned or misaligned? And usually, um, when they are, uh, when there's some kind of friction or disagreement, it's because incentives are misaligned in some way. And I'll give you an example. So, um, me and my community manager were talking about it yesterday, actually, and we were just trying to break down like, like, okay, why you know why is this happening the way it is? So it's just about uh you know uh, some of our video content and we realized that like his incentive was to grow awareness of rebank obviously right as a community manager my incentive was to showcase really cool videos to investors maybe prospects right so so like hold those in your mind for a moment as the community manager if videos are getting like 50 views, you're kind of like, well, this isn't going to help me grow Rebank. I need to focus my time on other things. So, you know, it'll be a bit choppy. It'll it'll be like, I'll just be quick. I'll do something quick, get it out. You know, done is better than perfect, right? But for my incentive of showcasing 30 se- awesome 30-second clips, like I, it needs to be perfect because it, the audience is of one and I'm trying to convince one or two people. So when we, when we were talking about it at that level, it was like, oh, well, of course. Of course, like, done is better than perfect because, you know, you want to grow the, you know, you want to grow our user base and, 
and yeah, like I just, um, yeah, well, that's an example. And I, I just love finding the sort of, yeah, I love finding those hidden, I guess those hidden drivers of decision-making. Right. And that all comes from just this, this very sensible principle of like, no one wants to, no one gets out of bed and, and it's like, okay, I want to do a really bad job today. <laughs> right. It, it's just dumb. But I think most companies act as if their employees get up and, and like, I, and to say to their, you know, girlfriend, boyfriend, right. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I really screw up our code base today. <laughs> but so, yeah, when you, when you like realize how dumb that is, um, yeah, the conversations you can have around disagreements and moving forward are just far more interesting and yeah. it almost sounds like the um the purpose of a conversation is to verbalize the um the the hidden drivers in the room like you said um and part of the difficulty of finding work is that it's a one player game and you therefore don't get the chance to necessarily verbalize the hidden drivers that exist inside your own mind um, and, and this goes back to awareness this goes back to awareness yeah uh so that's why like i i'm the guy that asked those kind of left field questions um yeah the yeah because people get on their track and and then yeah you have to find a way to sort of bring them back into like okay let's let's focus on drivers let's focus on data let's focus on the task that has been done or has not been done as opposed to just like, yeah, like kind of clashing. It's almost like you need to put a little version of yourself on your shoulder to be that person in the, that asks those difficult questions. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to take the Google metaphor and you have a scribe um, and you have data um, are there any practical things that you think you could reference in your, if someone's trying to figure out, okay, how, where could I, what project should I work on next? Or um, should I join this company or stay where I currently am? Like in that Google analogy of you've got a scribe that's kind of, kind of taking note of all of the things that you're working through and you're being presented with all of the information that you need in order to make that decision. Like how would, how would you picture that in your, in your own mind? It's so easy to fall on platitudes about what I said earlier, learning about making sure that people are awesome. Um, making sure that like the company is, is uh, 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 focusing on, on a mission or vision that you care about. Right. I think those things come up a lot. Um, and <laughs> I feel like I could give so many non-answers because of what I said earlier about awareness, but I, I, I think ultimately, mm, having a single decisive reason is something that's also, uh, like not done enough, um, where you can put the pros and cons and write them out. And each one you can do your like this is what um you know this is what the values are and how i align to them this is what uh, this is and but you're only really lying to yourself do you not actually your attempt at being rational is is still only accounting for 
a fraction of of the full uh, sort of I don't know the full decision and the full data set that you really need to be rational. So you know, do all of that. Do the values. Do the you know, do the people. Do the growth, and whatever the hell else you can think of. But always decide based on one single decisive reason. And I think when it came to me leaving my company, uh, Secret Escapes, and starting Rebank, I it, it did come down to that. So like, it, let's list all the bad things. I've got to pay a, a lot of money for an MBA. And if I leave work, I'm how the hell am I going to do that? Um, no promise of salary. Um, we'll have to, you know, obviously a lot of stress figuring things out. You know, family, parents, friends not understanding, like, what, are you unemployed now? Like, what, what's going on? Uh, there's a lot of cons, but on the, on the plus side, it's like something that I've realized is really important to me and I wanted to do in the next three years, right? Everyone's like, oh, you know, what do I want to achieve in the next three years? After some thinking, I was like, well, screw the next three years. I'm just going to, let's just start now. Um, so I ignored the financial, social, uh, family, like negatives. And my single decisive reason was, um, this is, I've never been this excited about starting something. And, uh, and this feels like it really kind of, it just, yeah, there was something that was like, I don't know. I can't describe it. You, I mean, but you know, you know what I mean. It just felt exciting. Work, working for a startup was awesome. The people and everything, but the single decisive reason was like, if not now, like when? <laughs> Which sounds so emotional and hearty and stuff, but but yeah, um, I don't think there's a right or wrong way. In some ways, if you have a single decisive reason, but you're doing is you're optimizing for making a courageous decision like the one that you did um that may be better suited to your type of character that wants to live in in that and it would almost strike me that if you were the type of person who wanted more balance and your version of fulfillment and happiness was less of a kind of regret minimization and more uh, kind of here and now how can i live my life by being in the present or however someone wanted to choose how to live it that they they may not choose to identify a single decisive reason for the decision that they make but they may try and find some kind of balance between all of the multiple drivers well yeah and that, and that's what creates uh like inertia in decision making because you've got these two tables or in your mind of like pros and cons and you you just get stuck and you just stay in the I mean <laughs> you stay in the same job it's okay to stay in the same job uh, until you realize that that is not um like nourishing you and then like you not leaving then like you're the you're the problem frankly mm. um and that you're the problem because you have the pros and cons but you can't pick a single decisive reason the the single decisive mm. reason also works when when you say no in that you might have three reasons why no is the best option, but you still owe it to yourself and those who are affected by the decision to pick one. Um, hmm. 
Yeah, and you know, had examples of, of this uh, as well, where like more of a social thing about, you know, let's just say like, you know, picking to um, to spend more time with one person, you know, one group of people or another. You know, you can list it mm. and then, but you, you always have to go to your single decisive reason. Otherwise, you'll doubt yourself more. Mm. Uh, and again, it might just be me, but I doubt my decisions less. When I do whatever exercise I want, you know, I gather my data, qualitative and quant, if there's some, but then I go back to single decisive reason. You said earlier that your single decisive reason was learning velocity. And if you can find a company that's growing 30% or whatever, then, then you want to try and you, you're going to be in an environment where you can pick up as, as much learning as possible. How do you balance that against the kind of classic YC advice, which is like be a cockroach? You, know, you need to get through this thing. Like if it's not growing, don't worry about it. Just don't give up. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, n not all companies are growing 30% month on month when you're interviewing. But there's no need to reconcile that because they describe two different moments in a company's life. Um, we, the cockroach thing goes back to like other ways that they say it is like the only thing you have to do to succeed is to is like don't just don't die. So when times are tough, like make the cuts, make the changes that need to happen to go into cockroach mode. Um, so like when, and another illustration of this, when we were creating our, our like plan for fundraising after demo day, we had, <clears throat> we had like a optimistic, you know, sort of an A, B and C plan. And the C stood for cockroach. So like plan A was like, you know, higher 10 and do this plan B was like higher 20 because we're going to do so amazing. But plan C, plan cockroach was like, okay, everything, you know, goes belly up. Um, we, yeah, we, we just stay as like four people and we get back to four people and we just work things out as a small team. So, yeah, that's on the company side. On the candidate side, if you have a toss up between like a 30% month on month and like an early stage, then yeah, that's that's hard actually because um, you know we've been both, and we've had people join us when we were when we were like not a thirty percent company. Um, but and that goes that goes into the the complexity of decision making once again because, like, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, <laughs> well, you know, it, it's hard to 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 sort of comment on it without picking a, a scenario. But like, I guess I'll just say, I'll just say that there is no need to reconcile. They describe separate events or moments. And, you know, for a candidate, uh, as long as you have an understanding of where that company's going, why they're growing 30% month on month and so on. And if they're growing in the way that you like, then that's, that's all you need to continue your sort of, uh, analysis if you want to call it that in some ways i mean they say if you want to get good at sales you try and sell a product that doesn't have product market fit um is there an argument to say if you want to get good at something then you should join it before it hits that 30 percent growth and that learning velocity 
because the learning velocity will actually not be in line with the company's growth. Mm-hmm. But you'll learn more if it's stagnant. The more, so like selling something that doesn't have product market fit. So yeah, the when there are no, uh, when it's untested, when it's hard to do to achieve something, then you will get better at it. Yeah, hundred percent. So like, how how does that relate to you know to to like joining companies? Um, they will be different kinds of growth for you. And and this is something we see in the US more than we see here, where people come to us and they're like, I'm a I'm an early stage expert. So I've done it like six times, go from like three people in a bedroom to like 50. And I know how that works in consumer or B2B or whatever. Um, and and so on. So yeah, I mean, that is yet another layer to consider. Like, if you had joined Rebank when it was three or four of us, you would have got in at the ground floor. Um, and you would have had to go on on just, you know, the founders and some, you know, YC, the amount that we'd raised. And for some people, that is enough. It's all about their risk appetite. And yeah, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad that uh, the team that we now have sort of uh, trusted us and believed in in our vision that has now become their vision as well um, but yeah it it's um, yeah it depends what that individual wants doesn't it if you were in a parallel universe and you were an early stage employee knowing what you know now and you were deciding where to work and you were considering working at a company that didn't have product market fit, you were going to join pre-product market fit, and you were trying to assess whether you would join that company or not, what factors would come into your decision-making? Yeah, I mean, as a found- I have an unfair advantage as a founder uh, in making that decision um, because... So, okay. Hmm. It's important to describe, like, where I'm making this decision from um, so like I have had to develop my understanding of like what I care about. And, and all I mean is I care about helping founders like me um, do work in a whole new, in a completely new way. And that's what we do at Rebank. We, you know, we're the financial source of truth uh, for founders, for startups that turns 12 days of work into 12 seconds. So like, I know I really, really care about that. Uh, so like the sort of mission driven side of it, I'm, I'm clear on. Some people don't have that. Uh, so yeah, knowing that will, it's probably gonna be the strongest uh, driver if I had to choose a company because I would wanna work in a company where the customer was a founder seed series b right i can get really specific when when you know that right so i like if it's uh, consumer stuff it, it'd just be a whole new thing i just can't be bothered um it'd be helping founders with finances uh and making sure we elim- like eliminating finance in some way for them so that's one thing then like when it came to meeting people um <laughs> I think, you know, with the best intentions, founders 
uh, sometimes lie to themselves about progress, about everything, because you know you have to you have to be a little bit schizophrenic to to deal with the negative and the positive all in the same day. So I'd really drill down on on what is actually working, right? Um, and then I would drill down on how they want to grow in the next two years. And that's frank. That's what I do as a as a you know in Rebec as a founder. Um, I'm, every three weeks at the end of our cycle, it's like okay, what's actually working for us? Let's do more of that. And then the other side of me has to think about the next two years because I'm talking to investors. So, so three things, right? So, you know, your sort of impact or mission thing that you care about. Um, what's actually working for them and what they want, how they want to grow in the next uh, uh, two years. And drilling down just on one of them. Uh, for me, I want to work in companies that grow organically uh, through word of mouth, through referrals. I don't want to work in a company that has a sales team that is forcing a product down a company, a customer's throat. Right, so if I'm having a conversation with a founder and and he's talking to he or she is talking to me about community, um, about uh, referral like referral loops in the product product led growth, I'm like yes, this is exactly like what I want to focus on. Um, so yeah, you know, just picking on one of those, but I can do that because I have the awareness, I have the context, right of how companies grow, of what works, what I want. Uh, so yeah, it's harder when you don't have all of that. How much of that information are you able to pull together before you go into a company, for example, or let's say before you went into that company trying to figure out whether you wanted to be a part of the team or not? How much of that information could you gather before you went in there versus that you'd have to gather through conversation? Yeah, no, that's really, I mean, that's really relevant. Um, a surprising amount just through the website. Just uh, so, like, it's, in fact, it's super easy. Sign up for the product and experience it. Like, what's the onboarding experience like? Is it shit? Yeah. If onboarding's crap, if you need to talk to a human to get on onto the product, um, if you ask support questions and no one gets back to you, you're you're already learning. And in fact, when we hire, like, we've had so few of our candidates that actually sign up and start using the product. And when they do, it really makes them stand out because that's how I would do it. Yeah, I'd sign up. I'd pretend I'd be, you know, Johnny Appleseed uh, at Hotmail.com. I'd be trying everything, signing up to the newsletter, just understanding everything. So actually, yeah, it is easy. You don't need too much context. So then the questions at the interview are around things you care about and it could be decision making, uh, or yeah, whatever you know, growth or whatever. Reminds me of a Reed Hoffman quote, a paraphrase, where he would hire people before he'd even he decided whether he was going to hire someone or not before he'd even met the person because he's already got a reference on that person from four or five other people who have known him and he's done some kind of back channel. And it's almost like, could you do that 
if you're mm. trying to figure out whether you should work on this project or not, is there a way of you back channeling references on the people or the product that you'd be working on somehow? I think it's easier the cap for the candidate about the company than the company about the candidate. Um, yeah, I mean, read. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, that's kind of cool, you know, because the, the sort of, yeah, the leverage is with the candidate, really. Um, and if they're a strong candidate, then and they do this additional research, they just stand out. You know, so they, they will always stand out. Can I ask you a few final kind of slightly quick fire, but maybe difficult to answer questions? Um, how have you handled the trap that we tend to fall in, uh, like a sunken cost fallacy, where you're going to make this big call that's like you're, people are going to think you're on the doll, but you're not. How, how do you make up for those costs that are sinking in that moment? I always made sure that we had just some, a sliver of, of hope. Um, so in the very early days, when we, we, we talked to like customers and prospects are the ones that ultimately decide. When we talked about the problem, we'd get maybe one or two people really excited. And that was like, okay, cool. But then we'd get a bunch of people that would literally walk us out of their office and like laugh at <laughs> We had this, we, we you know, traveled like two hours to go to somewhere north of London and walked for 10 minutes. It was like an industrial estate. And we presented and they just kind of looked at us. And I think they felt so sorry for us that they showed us how, how what the tool that they use uh, <clears throat> instead of us. And they kind of like walked us out. It's like, okay, thank you. So you kind of, I don't know. We, you just have, you have to ignore so much, which is a sunken cost fallacy. But because we had, you know, those one, always had one or two or three people every month being like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, I can see where this is going. That was enough for me. Um, and I suppose that's, you know, that that's classed as faith, right? Because that's not rational. Um, so then ultimately it becomes about, yeah, it becomes about the bigger, like, what is the bigger thing here? And the bigger thing for us was about, uh, creating this thing that didn't exist that we thought was extremely important. Uh, so yeah, sunken cost fallacy all the way through to YC, really. Mm. But that's fine. I think sunken cost fallacy really best applies in immediate short-term decisions. For the longer-term life stuff, like it's, it's maybe a bit more complicated. Would you apply the kind of same, the same thought and the same belief structure, kind of having that faith in something on a personal level too. like for example when you left secret escapes like it must have felt like you were sinking a whole load there are you still looking for 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 faith there yeah and because of how you know how we described that your mind can only perceive so much my i, I well i i wouldn't ever attribute you know my successful my good decisions to the sort of my ability to make them um there's always an, an element of chaos in there so it applies across the board uh, there's no distinction between personal and and career 
uh, like decisions, um, you know, when you when you're actually thinking about them. When you set out your view of what you want to create, whether that's your own personal career or whether it's the life of Rebank, you you look at it with nothing but perfection. You you want it to be perfect. Our ideals and our ambitions come from our views of perfection. How have you balanced that against the kind of the thing that we've all come to realise, which is that we are not perfect, and that in order to get to that place, you're going to have to you're going to have to do a lot of things that feel imperfect in some way. It got easier as we went on. And the, that striving for perfection early on just made us so slow. Maybe that's something that YC kind of beat out of us. Um, they, you know, they all they tell their startups is talk to users and build and everything else is a distraction. And that's all we did for three months. Um, but the perfect, yeah, like now, Mm. <laughs> I, I definitely like the moments where I've been the most sort of frustrated uh, have been when, you know, some kind of imaginary level that I've created in my mind hasn't been met. And in the moment, it's, yeah, I get frustrated and I show it, but I've, yeah, it's different, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're leading a team, when you're managing people, that stuff doesn't really, yeah, you, that's not sustainable. You can't, uh, your com communication has to trump any, any sort of imaginary line or belief. So, um, what I like my antidote and it's a long-term one is, is to, it's kind of to teach. I've realized in the last year that I really, I would never be a teacher, but I like spending time with a group, just five minutes, just showing them something uh, obscure uh, about business um, that I picked up from the masters or whatever. So it's kind of like by, by helping everyone understand the company the way I do, um, that then, that then becomes more important than like striving for perfection. And, and that is a journey that I am on. And what I feel now is that I'm combining those two things. And those are the two things that really matter to me. And I, I want to develop in the next year, my ability to tell stories, right. To educate. And my ability to turn the people around me into the most formidable versions of themselves. <laughs> I would never been able to say that five years ago, but like, you know, it's just being surrounded by awesome founders in the US and, and all of that. I, I have no, yeah, you know, I, I just don't think there's any merit in being subtle. You know, you really have to, have to, um, believe in yourself and, and yeah that's what i believe i am i'm here to do um so mm -hmm. so yeah it, it the perfection thing is kind of like more about perfection about working with your team than it is about the goal because they create it with you you know 
how do you if if the great ideas look bad how does that principle apply to finding work in some way because whilst it's difficult for an investor to be able to pick an idea that may feel or look like a toy but actually is something more profound that problem is just as equally difficult to solve if you're someone deciding whether you should work on that project and dedicate your time to it or not you're always hopefully making decisions on you know on, like a multi-dimensionally and and you know on your list of negatives it could be yeah the the product kind of sucks um but as long as on your positives you have things that matter to you like the I don't know where they want to go is really interesting talking to them I feel like they really know this space you know and my the questions as a candidate that I'm asking to try and like try and you know break their logic or whatever they are impressing me with with their ability to discuss it and I, I think um yeah it's more about the people at least to me right so yeah, every product is it kind of looks like a toy. Uh, is a bad idea at the beginning, mostly unless it's a copy of the same thing that already exists. So, um, so yeah, it's it's okay as long as the other things that you care about are there. Thank you so much for taking the time out to break down the way that you make these decisions. Yeah, no, thanks, Ben. Um, yeah, that was really fun. Made me think a lot. Thank you. The Best Work Podcast is produced by the team at Cord. I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work Podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at benatcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation insightful video content and more at core.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.